0: Well, it's good to be with you here this morning. I'm glad to be part of a a church, a big C church, right, that is uh, connectional, that has uh, relationships, and I love worshiping together with brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, many of whom I've never met before. It's a great privilege to be here. I invite you now to uh, open with me your copy of God's Word to the book of Mark, chapter 9, Mark chapter 9. We'll be, we'll be focusing especially on verses 38 through 41 this morning. Uh, I'll start reading in verse 37 just to give us a, a little bit of context, but to back up just a little bit more and, and make sure we understand where we are in the course of the narrative. Uh, Mark chapter 9 marks the midpoint of Mark's gospel and, and it starts off with a bang. Mark 9, as you may recall, uh, starts off with Jesus being transfigured up on a high mountain, and his, his glory is put on, I won't say full display, but certainly uh, the greatest display that anyone had yet seen up to that point. And, and after coming down the mountain, then Jesus begins this long walk from uh, the northern part of Israel all the way down to Jerusalem in the south. And over the next several chapters, Jesus talks with his disciples along the way, and he tells them several times why he's going to Jerusalem. It's not what they expect, but it's because he's going there to die for their sins and for our sins. Well, he's just told them that again, and and, uh, now they've begun arguing over which of them is the greatest in, uh, which would be the greatest in his kingdom that, they, that this kingdom they expect Jesus to usher in, they obviously didn't get what he was saying. But uh, that's, that's probably something that all of us have dreamed of at one point or another. Maybe as a, as a child, dreamed of, of being great, or at least being great to somebody, right? I can remember uh, as a boy, uh, I certainly dreamed of greatness the same way uh, many boys did. That is, being a great athlete. I wanted to be a star athlete, and this may come as a, a surprise to some of you, uh, since I turned out to be a pastor, but I was not the most athletic kid growing up. I mean, you could at least act surprised. <laughs> no, that's probably not surprising uh, to most of you. I've, I've gotten over it now, but, but certainly back then, I was not, we'll say, the first-picked for the team, anytime uh, a group was getting together to play a game in the neighborhood or at school, now, truth be told, I was usually picked closer to the end. We'll say <laughs> closer to the end of the group. Uh, maybe some of you can relate to that as well, being being picked last for the team. But one of the things about growing up, though, is that eventually your older brother either either moves away, you know, and the older kids and all the all those friends, or, or they get too busy doing other stuff, and all of a sudden. You get to be one of the older kids, and you get to be one of the ones who picks who is on which team. It's a great reversal, and I'd like to say, of course, that uh, I remembered being that small, uh, unathletic kid, and, and uh, when my t- turn came to pick teams, I gave those kids a chance to be picked first for a change, just to, just to you know, really give them that encouragement. I'd like to say that. But I also like to win, so that's not that's not what I did. Uh, picking teams, I think, is just it's a lot of it's a lot of pressure for teenagers, right? Um, it's it's a strange sort of power reversal for someone who used to get picked last to now get to be the one who picks. And and how do you pick? Who to include and who to exclude on your team? There's a lot of pressure for that choice. Well, Jesus' disciples were faced with a similar kind of question this morning in our text. Who is included and who's not included in this team? The problem is they forgot whose team it was. It wasn't their team. It's Jesus' team. Uh, They started, though, to think of it as their own team and and that's a problem that not just teenagers and not just first century men can fall into no it's a it's it's a uh, something that all of us can fall prey to isn't it that we can start to think that uh, who we include and who we exclude should be our choice and maybe we like to choose based on maybe who brings us the most benefit without remembering that if we belong to Christ Jesus, it's not our call, because it's not our team. It's his team, and who's included is based on what he says and not on what we want. And that's the main idea today in a nutshell. So let's dig into God's word now and see how he offers us a better way. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 37. Whoever receives one such child in my name, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. and We thank you that you give it to us so that you reveal yourself to us in your word. And you also reveal to us not only more about yourself, but you reveal to us more about ourselves. So we pray that you would help us to listen well to you this morning as your word is read and preached. We pray that you would help us to understand your word and and especially to apply it to our lives, that we would be able not only to know you more, but that knowing you, we would long to follow you all the more closely and all the more readily. And we pray it in the name of your Son Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Well, if you like to take notes and, and an outline is helpful for you, we're going to be uh, uh, looking at three main things this morning. Pretty, pretty simple outline. We're going to look first at the problem in this passage. Next, we're going to look at the solution that Jesus offers, and finally, we'll look at how that applies to our lives, particularly today. We won't neglect that all along, but we'll look especially at how that applies, and we'll look at two applications on that last point. So three things to look at nice and simple this morning. So let's begin by looking at the problem, which is pride. The problem's pride. Take a look again with me at verses 37 to 38. Whoever receives one such child in my name, this is Jesus speaking, he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. You've got to be honest, I'm amazed at Jesus' patience here with John. Because if I were in Jesus' position, I'm pretty sure I would have responded, Are you serious, John? Right? Like, have you been listening to a word that I've been saying? A child. I just told you to welcome a child, the, the lowest of the low in this society. And you're telling me you found a man who was doing my work opposing Satan, and he was doing it in my name, and you told him to stop? Kind of makes you wonder why John thought this was such a good idea to bring this up right now, after all, doesn't it? Let's back up just a little farther for a minute and remember a little bit more of the context. See, right before this, John and the rest of the disciples had been arguing, remember, over who was the greatest, which one of them was the greatest. They were so excited about the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. Right, Peter had just declared that, Jesus affirmed it, and, and Jesus now... Uh, It was headed to Jerusalem, and so they had all these ideas in their heads about what that meant for them as Jesus' closest friends. They wanted all the glory. They wanted the fame, the recognition that comes with being that close to the Messiah. And Jesus stopped them right in their tracks and said, No, to be my disciples means to be servants like me. To be great in my kingdom means not jockeying for the highest and greatest positions like you would in the kingdoms of this world, but humbling yourself to the lowest ones, to be the greatest servants, welcoming the lowest and serving the least. Shortly before that, in the same chapter, several of the disciples had failed to cast out a demon right after that transfiguration. So now along comes this guy who's succeeding exactly where the disciples had failed. He's casting out demons, but the disciples have no clue who he is. He hasn't been vetted, at least not by them. Has he even met Jesus in person? They don't know. What makes him think he's so special? Is he going to jeopardize their status as those closest to Jesus? Well, they had to put a stop to that. Jesus had called them specifically. Nobody was going to pass them in the race for most important and greatest disciple. You see how they definitely did not understand what Jesus had just been telling them. Now, they'd stopped arguing over which of them was the greatest. I guess that's one positive thing we could say. (laughs) They quit arguing with each other. But it wasn't because they were listening to what Jesus had said and trying to put it into practice, was it? It was because somebody else now looked like a new contender for that position of greatest. Right? Somebody else was doing what they couldn't do. Kind of like how you can have arguments or rivalries maybe within the family, right? Like uh, brothers and sisters kind of pick on each other a little bit. You guys, you know what I'm talking about, right? But as soon as somebody from outside the family tries to pick on your little brother, well, hold on a minute. We're going to put a stop to that, aren't we? All of a sudden, we're on the same team. See, I'm the only one who has a right to pick on my little brother. Thank you very much, right? That's a little bit like what happened here. All of a sudden, they're on the same team. So the problem is, we have no indication that this unnamed man was even trying to attack anyone or to make a play for or, or, or even that he was hoping for a closer position with Jesus, Really, we just have the disciples' quick response of jealousy, just shutting down someone who is doing the kind of work Jesus did, the kind of work that Jesus had even commissioned his disciples to do. Back in chapter 6, verse 7, it says he gave them authority over unclean spirits. So why would they do this? Right? Why would they discourage someone doing this kind of work? John tells us in verse 38. He, he comes right out and he, he says, he wasn't following us. But let me say it again for emphasis. He wasn't following us. You hear the difference? It's not that he wasn't following you, Jesus. That's not what he said. No, no he wasn't following us. It was the disciples' pride that was getting in the way. They wanted the recognition. They wanted the special status. They wanted to stand out as those that Jesus had called personally. And why did Jesus call them? Was it because they were so quick to understand his message and to promote it? Was it because they just listened so well to his teaching? Or because they were humble and teachable? Apparently none of those reasons, right? Right? Apparently, none of those. They completely missed the point that Jesus was trying to make that as his followers, not only were they called to be humble servants of others, to welcome those of low social status, but they had no place to to try and guard whatever status they had themselves, right? They had no place to be jealous. You can't do both of those things. You can't welcome and associate with the lowly, the, the dirty, the smelly as Jesus had said to do and to come out or expect to come out, uh, you know, sparkly and smelling fresh, right? Uh, to, to, to put it one way. If you do, you, you really haven't had an impact among that population you were trying to reach, just like Jesus came, and dwelt with us, not by remaining separate, but by becoming one of us, right? He also looked and smelled just like a human because he was one with all of our limitations. So Jesus had to remind his disciples yet again, already, that to follow him was not going to be the means of advancing their name, right? Or climbing up the latter in their careers. That's not what really following Jesus will do. It wasn't the means to get ahead in life, to become popular or successful or to get a political boost. He wasn't their ticket to financial freedom or conflict-free relationships, health, wealth, prosperity, and a good uh, uh, reputation to boot. That's not Jesus' life, was it? It's not the disciples' life. And it's not what he promises us today either. Jesus is not the way to become great in the world's eyes. If that's what they were looking for, they were following the wrong guy. Jesus was headed to a cross as he had just explained to them. And he also promised that people would persecute us for his name. Following Jesus, it shouldn't be a pride boost to us that we have chosen well. No, No, following Jesus needs to be a pride check because it means that the only way that we could be saved from our sins was by the death of the Son of God in our place. That's what kind of sinners we are. But thankfully, that's exactly what he did for us. He welcomed us completely at the greatest cost, even when we didn't deserve it. And that's the solution that he provides next. His solution is his gracious welcome. His gracious welcome. Let's look again at Jesus's response in verses 39 to 41. Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who's not against us is for us. Truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. now there's a lot in this response but but probably most of the attention typically goes right there in the center on verse 40. that little proverb the one who's not against us is for us can be a little confusing. people might argue over what it means uh, at, but it makes sense that our attention would be drawn there right? not only is it at the center of Jesus's response but it's a proverb, and, and proverbs are meant to be succinct, memorable, attention-getting, right? But the thing about proverbs is they're also situational. I mean, they're, they're, they're generalizations, but they're not generalizations that can be applied anywhere and everywhere. They apply in a large category of times, but they, they, they're never meant to express everything that there could possibly be to say about a topic, right? They, they, they can't be short and memorable and also have all that nuance, right? It's just, it's just it, it doesn't work that way. And, and usually we kind of understand this intuitively, right, for proverbs that we're familiar with. Uh, but, but sometimes we see a proverb like this in the Bible and we can get confused about how they work. So let me give you an example maybe from a common proverb uh, from our own culture, in, in English language, we have a, pro- a proverb that says, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? Everybody's heard that proverb before. And, and we all know what that means, right? It means we can grow and we can learn through trials. And the process of getting through something challenging uh, often strengthens us to be able to meet greater challenges in the future, right? We, we know that. We also know that it doesn't literally mean that any injury not directly resulting in death somehow levels up our physical strength, right? We all know that that there are some things in life that leave lasting scars that never really heal all the way. That doesn't mean the proverb doesn't have its place, just that we have to understand what it's meaning to say and what it's not trying to say, right? Well, this proverb's the same. It's not meant to be applied to everyone, everywhere, in every way. So what is Jesus trying to say? Well, in the context, he's not talking about who goes to heaven, who's good enough for Jesus, whether it's okay to just be neutral towards God or kind of undecided. Hey, as long as you're not actively opposing him, you're good, right? That's not what they're talking about at all, is it? No, they're not talking about heaven at all here. They're talking about whether those who are true believers— those who are in Jesus's name, as verse 38 says this man was, whether they can still be included in Jesus's kingdom on Jesus's team, right? If they're not part of the particular group these 12 disciples belong to. Does this guy get to use Jesus's name if he's not with us? So Jesus is addressing the disciples' partisanship and clickishness. He's, he's preaching against their focus on their own position and status and personal agenda over the work of Jesus's mission. See that? He, he, he's trying to say, quit making enemies where they don't exist. Because real enemies to the gospel do exist. But followers of Jesus, we shouldn't be the ones looking for fights, especially among ourselves, setting ourselves up against anyone we suspect of maybe threatening our own position. Jesus is saying, don't worry about that. I can worry about that. Instead, focus on Jesus and on his work instead. And you can tell that's the case. By the way, Jesus refocuses the question from John's, See, he wasn't following us to no one who does a work in my name. You see how the focus shifts from us, the disciples, to Jesus's name. Because the status that John and the rest of the disciples should be most concerned about is not us. It's not themselves, but the status of Jesus's name. If this guy is doing Jesus's work in Jesus's name, then, then whether he's part of John's particular ministry or not, he's on Jesus's team. And that's what matters. That's what Jesus Is pointing out here. The Apostle Paul, uh, in his letter to the Philippians, he talks about how while he's in prison proclaiming Jesus, his his actual rivals, true rivals to the gospel, are proclaiming Jesus, not, not to honor him as Lord, but actually just to cause Paul more trouble. But the Lord is using them to bring people to himself. They're having a successful ministry, and Paul says he rejoices. He rejoices that his rivals are finding success because Paul's highest goal is not to exalt Paul. They're actively trying to hurt Paul, but Jesus is being lifted up, and that's what matters. That's somebody who understood what Jesus is saying here. It's not our team, it's Jesus's team. So the window of of who can be included in us is broad. Anyone can be included. As long as their commitment is not broad in the sense of, of to anything and, and everything, but it's it's narrow in the sense of being devoted to Jesus's name and his name alone. In fact, I, I don't know if you noticed, but that phrase in my name or, or in your name is used three times in those three verses. And I'm, actually, it's, it's the only qualifier that's used really to describe this man's ministry, which makes it pretty important. That's how we know the, the man who was casting out demons was on Jesus's team because he was doing it in Jesus's name. That is for his sake and by his spirit. We know that uh, he is truly on Jesus's team because we can compare that to other times when people have tried to uh, talk about demons being cast out, and uh, the names in which they do it. So back in chapter 3, Jesus was accused of casting out demons by a different name. Remember, by the name of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And Jesus pretty easily replied, Satan's not divided against himself. Right? If demons are being cast out truly, then it's not by other demons. It's by It has to be by someone who's greater than the demons, Right? by a greater name than that of Beelzebul and in Acts 19 we find some itinerant Jewish exorcists which just as an aside has got to be a really niche business to get into right like I've never met any itinerant Jewish exorcists but I would love to know what their day looks like on an average day but anyway these guys show up and uh, they start trying to cast out demons in Jesus's name remember that uh, and now they use a bunch of different names, but they include Jesus as one of the names. And remember what the demons do? They laugh at them. They laugh. Because Jesus' name isn't just a talisman that people can wave around. It's not a magic word. It doesn't just work in and of itself. If, if someone is casting out demons in Jesus' name, as he is in this passage, it's because he has faith in Jesus, and he's doing so in the power of, of jesus it's not an empty name to him so when jesus says that we're to receive the lowly in his name and that no one doing his work in his name is going to turn around and be fundamentally against his mission he means that this guy who doesn't even get named in the gospels he's getting it right while jesus's hand-picked disciples all of whose names we know they're getting it wrong They're still focused on themselves and on their status rather than on what Jesus wants, on what's best for the team. And what Jesus wants, what's best for the team, he says here, are simple acts of service and welcome. Whoever gives a cup of water in Jesus's name is doing what he wants. That's such a low bar, isn't it? That's a really low bar. A cup of water is just about the only thing you can still reliably get for free at any restaurant, right? It's it's so tiny, it's not costly. But if it's done for Jesus' sake, because you belong to Christ, he says, it's done in his name, out of service to him, to further his mission. If that's true for a cup of water, then how much more is it true? for the great works that they're arguing over. Jesus said, whatever we do for the least of these, we do for him. But maybe the most surprising part of this whole passage is not what qualifies a person to get to use Jesus' name or what it means to do something in Jesus' name, but it's, it's the particular name that Jesus uses for himself in verse 41. He calls himself Christ. Christ. It's the only time that Jesus specifically uses that word, that title, to refer to himself. Now, others have said it, as we just said. Peter said it. Jesus affirmed it, and he confirmed it. But this is the the only time that Jesus says it explicitly about himself. That reminds us that the welcome that we extend to others The inclusion that Jesus is telling his followers to be marked by, it's a function of his mission as God's anointed Savior. This is big. In other words, that that gracious welcome that he calls us to in this passage is a function of the gospel itself, the good news of Jesus' presence among us in this world. Or to put it another way, we welcome others because we've first been welcomed by Christ Jesus. And that leads us to the application. And that application is, let's welcome others as we have been welcomed. We're called to welcome others as we have been welcomed. That actually comes directly from Romans 15, verse 7. says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And the first and and most important question to know how to do this and how to do it well is, how has Christ welcomed you? We have to know how Jesus welcomes us. So, So how have we been welcomed in Christ? Well, Ephesians 2 says, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but... Now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We've been welcomed, not because of who we are, not because of what we've done, but because of the blood of Christ. Jesus died in order to welcome strangers and enemies to himself. And through him, Ephesians continues, we have access in one spirit, To the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's that's good news. Amen? That is good news. So Jesus has welcomed strangers and foreigners into his kingdom, and he's made us full citizens and, more than that, members of his own royal family. Isn't that amazing? See, it's one thing to welcome maybe suspicious immigrants from enemy territories. That's incredibly gracious, right? That's what Jesus is talking about. But to then take those same foreigners and welcome them into his own family, giving them the full rights as heirs of the kingdom, that's unheard of. But that is the kind of welcome that we have received in Christ Jesus. Radical. Gracious welcome. You can't just choose to do that without consequence, can he? There's always a price to be paid because we weren't just strangers and foreigners; we were enemies of God's kingdom. The Scripture tells us, rebels against Him because of our sin. All the ways that we fail to live up to God's perfect righteousness, both uh, the things we do that are against what he says in his word and the things we fail to do in thought, word, and deed, or the ways we fail to be holy as he is holy and to positively seek to, to bring about his perfect kingdom of peace and justice and to do his will on earth as it is in heaven. All of that is sin, both our offenses and our failures it separates us from a perfectly just and holy and a perfect, sinless God. So we couldn't have any access to him. We were his enemies. Not only would we not belong in his family, what we deserve is the wrath of God as our enemy because we've made ourselves his enemies by our sin. That's not to say you're necessarily a, a, a worse person. Than everybody else. That's that's the reality we're all in by nature. God made us good, but we've all rebelled against him. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but God loved us so much that even though we deserved for him to wipe us out entirely, instead he took the penalty we deserved on himself. Jesus came as God's own son to live the perfect life that we could never live the only one who never sinned, not even once, came to take the punishment of death that every one of our sins deserve. He took it in our place so that by faith in him, our sins are paid for and there's no condemnation left. Instead, what's left, all that's left, is the perfect righteousness of Christ Jesus in its place. Instead of our sin, he took that and he gives us instead his perfect righteousness. Righteousness. So by his blood, we're welcomed as full citizens and even adopted into his family in the household of God with the full rights as heirs of his kingdom. That is such good news. There is no condemnation left. That's how we've been welcomed in Jesus. That's the welcome that we have received. Now, if this is new for you, or if it's not new, but you're, you're kind of wrestling with this idea, or you've, you've got some questions about all of this, I'd love to talk with you after the service is over about any questions you have, or even just, just to pray with you about anything that's going on in your life. But if you know this welcome, if you know what Jesus has done for you, this welcome that he's extended to all who believe in him, then, then the second part of this application is especially for you. Show his gracious welcome. Show that welcome that you have received. And normally where, where you might expect us to go with this would be to, to show this welcome that we've received to those who don't yet know Jesus. That is a, a great point, a great idea to show others how he extends his completely gracious welcome, not based on who they are or what they've done, but based on who he is and what he's done. This is absolutely something that we are called to do, and it's worth talking about extensively how to do that well and encouraging others to do that. Yes, but that's not what this passage is about. It's not what this passage is about. This passage is about extending God's gracious welcome to those who already know him, but who don't belong to us. Sometimes that's harder, right? Because some Christians, some Christians are weird, right? There's no getting around it. Some Christians can be hurtful. Some Christians are just, they're just wrong, right? They're just wrong about some things, but that's not why we were welcomed in Christ Jesus, was it? Not because we get everything right? Not because we're great people? Not because we're especially lovely or charming or pleasant to be around? No, we are welcomed by God's grace and by God's grace alone. And that's a really good thing, or else none of us could be here, right? None of us could be here. That's how we're to welcome our brothers and sisters in Christ as well. That doesn't mean there's no place for healthy debate, sharpening one another uh, on our understanding of Scripture. We're certainly called to speak the truth to one another, remembering to do so in love. But we can't just write off those we disagree with, especially if we disagree on secondary or, or tertiary issues, right? Anything that's not central to the gospel itself. Families, as we probably all know, families can be messy. And that's true for the family of God as well. But we're still family. We're still family. It's always better if we can learn to get along and show one another gracious love like we've been shown in Christ. In fact, one of the ways we are able to reach others outside of the family is by how they see us treat one another inside the family. Do you know that? Jesus said they will know that we belong to him by the love that we show to one another. Loving one another within the church, even the Big C church, even across denominational lines. Right? Now we're really getting out there, aren't we? It's a way of showing forth the gospel and the love of Jesus that's extended to anyone who will receive it. And unfortunately, that's not something that those of us in the Reformed camp have always done very well. Right? I say this as a committed Reformed presbyterian and we don't exactly have a reputation for being the most warm and welcoming towards those we disagree with but as jesus reminds us this morning we're not primarily reformed and then christians you know what i mean when i say that Our understanding of of who God is and what the Bible says certainly affects everything in our lives. I I don't mean to say that that doctrine is unimportant. I, I believe, and I'm firmly committed to, the principles of the Reformed faith. But more important than our particular tribe is Jesus, right? Jesus is most important. It's not our team. It's Jesus's team. So when uh, we meet people from other churches, or we hear about people from other churches. Our first question shouldn 't be well, what kind of church do they go to? Where did their pastor go to the seminary who who do they read or listen to i mean the, those are those are not terrible questions right they, they can certainly tell us something uh, but They can tell us about uh, important influences and and how we we understand who God is, all of that, But, but they can only tell us about our relationships with other fallible human guides, right? At the end of the day, that's what they tell us, our relationships with other fallible human guides. Jesus has a far simpler question for whether someone is on the same team as we are. Are they living and acting in the power of his name? That's the question that he would put before us this morning. Do they know Jesus, and do they try to do what he says? If so, we're on the same team, and we can partner together for his sake, right? That's, what, uh, that's, that's why that's really the only basic requirement for membership in his church. Do you love Jesus and try to do what he says? That's essentially what our, our five membership questions boil down to in the PCA. Do you love Jesus? you know Jesus, love him, and try to do what he says? If so, welcome, brother, sister. Let's work together to exalt the name of our God and make him known in eastern Pennsylvania. That's our goal together. I hope that's our goal together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you've been harboring bitter thoughts maybe towards brothers and sisters in Christ who maybe believe some different things than you do, about how we should live out our faith, or about some point of doctrine, then I hope uh, that she'll use the next few moments uh, as we get a chance to pray, to repent of that before the Lord, Uh, to to ask his forgiveness, and to commit to finding ways to love and serve others, to find even the simplest ways, like bringing a cup of water or or lifting them up in prayer for the Lord's sake, for his kingdom and for his glory. So we've been loved and welcomed with so much grace. Let us love and welcome others with the grace that we've received, not worrying about whether we benefit, but serving for Christ's sake. So I'll take just a moment now to reflect on what we've just heard. I invite you to pray silently where you are as you feel led and and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you consider how to live it out in the days, weeks. years to come. In just a moment, I'll close us with a prayer together. Let's pray silently. Jesus, I thank you that you have not welcomed us because we were worthy, but because you are. Thank you for not leaving us to ourselves, but for showing grace to us, though we were and are undeserving, and for transforming us into your sons and daughters, heirs of the king, with the full inheritance that you alone deserve as the only begotten son of the father. Thank you for welcoming us with open arms and for paying the ultimate price for for, for giving your life to do so. Help us to be those who extend gracious welcome even to those who offend us for your sake. Keep our eyes so focused on you and your work in this world that our agendas seem small in comparison and we find our joy in following you, doing your work, your way. It's in your name we pray, for your sake and for your glory. Amen. Now would you please stand as you're able as we respond to God's word by praising him in song. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.